Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. Our quote of the day is by Joan Miro. I consider my art studio as a kitchen garden. Here there are artichokes, there are potatoes, leaves must be cut so that the fruit can grow. At the right moment, I must prune. I work like a gardener. Things come slowly. Things follow their natural course. They grow, they ripen. I must graft, I must water. Ripening goes on in my mind. So I'm always working at a great many things at the same time. Again, that was Joan Miro. Hello, everyone. My name is Addie Hirshton. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, teacher with the Indianapolis Art Center, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and artists to inspire you and help you move forward. Today's podcast features an interview with the artist Sophia Ingar and the Russian story of the stone flower. Announcements. I just finished a 30 paintings in 30 days challenge. Um, all these paintings are posted on my blog. That's artistaddy.com. Go there to view the paintings. Um, many of them have sold. Many are still for sale on Etsy. So go check it out. I worked hard. <laughs> and there's always, a, there's always a few I think, ah, I could do a little better. And then there's a few that I'm very proud of. It's um, what happens when you churn out that many that quickly. Now I can take a breath. <laughs> so um, I'm also, I'm happy to announce that I will be teaching at the Art and Soul Retreat that will take place in Virginia Beach this coming September. September 2016. I'll be teaching Victorian flower painting and the secret language of symbols. So uh, go to the Art and Soul Retreat website to register for those classes specifically. I hope to see you there. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Sophia Inger. Sophia Inger is a visual artist who works with textiles, acrylics, and mixed media to create paintings, wall installations, and unusual sculptures. While she is currently based in Carmel, Indiana, near me, she is originally from Russia, where she earned her degree in fine art and art education at the Kirov Art College. Sophia has taught art with the Arts for Learning program and the Indianapolis Art Center, where she earned the 2011 Skip McKinney Faculty of the Year Award. Of her teaching and art, she wrote, When I need to grow as an artist, I look for teachers who listen and open new doors just for me. But then I have to walk through them myself. And when I work with my students, I believe in everybody's inner ability to create. It is always a dialogue, gentle or astonishing, 
sometimes very intuitive process of finding your voice. To learn more about Sophia, visit her website at sophiaingerart.com. That's S-O-F-I-Y-A-I-N-G-E-R-A-R-T.com. I started following Sophia Inger's work when she was a fellow teacher at the Indianapolis Art Center. I'm especially intrigued by her use of sculpture and collage in her work. Lately, many of her paintings have had added textures and elements that make them jump right off the page. Her work has an ethereal quality, illustrating rich symbolic scenes that seem to drift through the painting as if I'm viewing a dream. There's this mysterious quality to her work, and I'm so grateful that she's able to come and chat with us today to demystify it for us. So welcome, Sophia. <laughs> well, hi, Eddie. Uh, thank you for inviting me, and I'm very happy to be here today. So what is the story of how you became an artist? Well, uh, like many kids who are very introspective and try to be um, observing and maybe quiet, this was my uh, way of seeing the world through images. I always was looking for different interesting patterns. I even find patterns in food when I was eating and my mom would make pancakes. <laughs> so I would look at pancakes and I would find faces and birds and things on the burnt edges of pancakes. Oh. <laughs> so this is something that I remember very, very early on how fascinated I was with color and texture and pattern. Mm. So maybe this is something that was innate in me to see uh, the world visually, more visually. And um, this is how it all started. And I, um, you know, continued, continued to see things more introspectively, let's say. So there was a, a, a beginning of, of this, um, this path. And after some time, I, I was looking in mostly paintings from magazines. It was not um, a lot of visual um, materials that you can look. You know, we had a museum, and it was a wonderful museum, but it was mostly something that I just found in books and magazines. And then I started to try things myself. And um, at some point, I knew that I wanted to study it. Um, I had a friend who told me there is a after-school program that we can sign up for, but we have to take exams. And if though I was terrified of exams, oh. uh, we went together and uh, we both passed. And after about two weeks, she quit. Oh no! <laughs> and I'm still there. <laughs> I'm still doing that. So this was uh, a program that I found kids that are kind of like me. They were also interested in drawing and in painting and in looking at things a little bit more in and not not so, you know, interested maybe in um, the outside appearances of things, but maybe more inside, mm. just trying to find more meaning in, in things. So that's what I found. I found my, my, my tribe. 
<laughs> and that was not regular school. That was a school, uh, after school program, an after okay. school uh, kind of a school for the kids to develop. I had wonderful teachers. I had wonderful teachers that um, pushed me and made me try new things. Uh, we had uh, paintings and sculpture and uh, prepared our own canvases. I knew how to make things with, you know, rabbit skin glue and we did an actual, mm. actual painting that way. So it was, it was very, it was very uh, nurturing and it was very, um, the best friendships started that way. Mm. And after that, I was continuing and I went to, to college and, you know, just kind of kept going. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And so after college, how did you end up here? Is that part of your art story? Um, it is mostly part of, uh, not necessarily an art story, even though it gives me great stories to tell, <laughs> but it was part of the, my whole country's story and in particular my family's story uh we left in 1991 and this was the time of a great turmoil and um country my country was kind of falling apart to a degree and it was it was decided for us better to leave so we would uh you know bring i already had two kids at the at the time and it was safer for us to leave, so we left. We left on refugee status. Mm. Oh, wow. And how is the art world different there than it is here? And I, I realize it might have been different when you lived there than it is now, but I don't know if you have any thoughts about the difference between how Russian culture might view art and, and our culture here in the United States. You know, I I haven't been back, and it's been many many years. So what is now there? I I am not equipped to say. I am not the witness of this, so I can only know from accounts of people that I know, my friends. But I don't know exactly how the country feels and what's going on. I know it's changed tremendously, but when I was growing up. Um, and it's probably the time also, I don't think here it stays the same. Every country goes through transitions and sure. the art also uh, grows and changes and it's ebbs and flows with every country. So sure. the art here changes. Yeah, um, for sure. uh, so I was thinking, um, we had a pretty good classical basic education in terms of art, literature played a huge role, poetry, things that are maybe were not safe to say out loud, but they were more more easy to said with poetry and art. And you can convey meanings without saying things out loud. Yeah. So you could have a second and third and meaning that people could see if they know where to look. So the art really helped to be um, to express yourself in different modes, not in let's say in you know in open in open uh, language. Wow. Mm -hmm. the, 
Of course, growing up in Russia, the Russian culture affected me tremendously. The architecture I grew up in town that was very, very long history, and it's old and has amazing architecture, old churches and beautiful cathedrals and um, nature, forests. We did a lot of traveling, and I was um, kind of a... I like to wander. I was a wanderer. Even within the city limits, we would find places like the old ravines, and we will go and travel and have all these adventures, yeah. um, finding like little rocks or plants or flowers, and you know, just traveling. I, it was fairly safe. I was thinking now, we were just going around everywhere, and nobody <laughs> worried that much about us. <laughs> uh, so. Um, to compare, I think you can always find people who are your tribe in every country. Mm-hmm. And it took me some time, and I started in New York. Okay. Uh, so it took me some time to find people who were thinking within the similar modes with me or maybe admiring the same things as I did. Uh, but if you look in, if you open that you find them, it's the kind of a, like a wavelength, you know, like mm-hmm. you have a certain energy or a certain, certain feel that you are expressing with your art and with your own life. And you find people like yeah. you. Yeah. I know that we can, we can connect on certain levels and we could have a similar, similar affinities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like you were saying before we press the record button that, um, you know, art is a language that, you know, we don't, we aren't necessarily using words. And so it can be a more universal language. Do you have any other ideas on that? Well, absolutely. And I, uh, I was so lucky that I had this language when I came without, well, I knew some English. We studied English and it was mostly British English in school. So we had a different ways of pronouncing things. And, you know, you can't really um, speak any language if, you, if you're not in it, if you don't use it in everyday life. It's just from the books and anything from the books don't work. You have to actually start talking to people. It was a very, very big barrier. It was scary to open your mouth. I understood already, but I couldn't really say things. It was scary. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so um, the way that I... I was able to communicate. I didn't have to talk. And if somebody would say to me when I was first trying this new country, new soil, new uh, everything, new relationships, uh, style of living, food, everything, that I would be laughing if somebody would tell me that I will be teaching people and you know, <laughs> explaining a pretty elaborate concepts that would be impossible for me to imagine. <laughs> but, you know, life, um, I worked in retail. I worked with customers in floral business for many years. Oh. So that really groomed me to have a conversation, to, to wow. talk. So that was, that was um, a helping, helping environment. Yeah, yeah. 
And who knows where we'll be 20 years from now. (laughs) Okay. So what draws you to the wide variety of mediums you work with? Well, this kind of stems from that, the conversation we just started. I always want to expand my language and the means that I can communicate my feelings and ideas. So naturally, as I was calling myself a painter, I was starting to explore more and more texture. And it also helped that I worked a lot with um, different populations, uh, people with disabilities, uh, blind kids, um, people with different kinds of um, conditions that maybe prevented them from uh, seeing color or understand concepts, bigger concepts. I was trying different techniques with them and that also came back to me it's always a a conversation so when you're teaching something then you're conversing with your student and trying to think in in the same terms with them and it's like oh gosh you know I wanted to try this and that and and do carvings and do fabric and bunch them together and wrap them around and so it was a more immediate Uh, from your fingers to the materials that you're using. And they were, I was very excited to see that I've created something (laughs) three-dimensional. It was something uh, very seductive. And I can't, I, I, I want to go back to painting now. And sometimes it's hard for me to just use the flat surface. I always wanted to add more and more (laughs) layers to that. So this is something that, um, proved to be very seductive and very exciting, exciting for me. So I, I just had an opening last night at a interchurch center. Um, collabor- I've collaborated with a wonderful organization uh, for um, visually impaired kids who are young, young kids, and this organization helped them uh, get services before they can actually enter school. Okay. So uh, I had my big green man the wood man that was uh from the story dome at the burden. with the bird on top of his head so he's sitting there and he has books around him so the kids could sit and and read next to him because he he he, he used to be a chair he's a chair but <laughs> nobody knows that anymore <laughs> so i've built him up and he has a big big head and he's green so he's seemed to be very mild-mannered and has lots of textures in him. He has birds and nests that I've wrapped and made out of different kinds of fabrics and felt and, and thread and that. So how do you come up with ideas for your artwork? Are you the sort of person who just sits down and just whatever comes to your mind, it just flows or do you really plan it out before you execute what happens? Definitely not a lot of planning. It could be a trigger word or phrase or poetry. Mm. I've collaborated with a wonderful poet um, on on an art project. So it was amazing from words to visual images. Mm. Uh, Usually, 
it is something that starts to develop kind of like, you know, when you remember when you, when we were doing photograph and developing, <laughs> developing photographs in the dark room. Yeah. Uh, that was a great pro project. <laughs> so I missed that. Yeah. Um, so it kind of comes up floating to the surface and I can start with writing or I can start with doodling or I can start with um, moving things around. It could be a feel, some kind of emotion. Most likely it starts with emotion, not an abstract idea. And after it grows like a tree, so it develops, you know, gets deeper roots and then grows branches and then it starts to flower and the leaves and something something happens. Um, so I think emotion, emotion and even something ineffable, right? Something that you can't describe in words kind of builds up and needs to get out. Mm -hmm. So then I, color is very, very, very uh, strong element that I connect with and communicate with. Mm -hmm. And color for me is so mysterious and it has so many interpretations and meanings and I can't even explain how I use it, but I, 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 I feel how I when I teach students how to use color, I kind of, I try to make it easier. I, I admire people who teach color theory, but I cannot do that. I, I usually try to do something like imagine a family uh, and a lot of things happen in the family. Sometimes you have conflicts. Sometimes you have people who really love each other, so they would be, you know, analogous colors, <laughs> and they would and they would really stick to each other and they comfort each other. And sometimes you have a crazy uncle who comes in and really ruins the Thanksgiving dinner. So that would be your your color that jars. you know jars and uh, but. You sometimes you need that to jolt everybody out of their lull. Wow. <laughs> so, so I try to have more human human connection with uh, explaining explaining things, uh, not so academically. Let's say that. Oh, okay, okay. And I, when I was looking at your website this morning, I saw that there's um, one image that caught my eye, especially it's a, of a circus, I believe. And there's all these different people and there's a guy f maybe floating through the air or maybe doing acrobatics. And then there's this fish. And and I bring it up as an example because there, there's it's a story here. It's, it's like it's, it's an illustration of, you know, a, a dream sequence or, or something, something's happening here. Um, with that example, did that story and the scene just come out through the doodling and and, and then it's there? Not necessarily. Um, I think doodling itself is something that I, I, I work on to crystallize something, something to kind of get together. And I, I am aware of composition and I am aware of things that I can work within the place, you know, the canvas or wherever that 
the story is unfolding, I'm aware of how to organize it. It's not random. It it has a certain logic and a certain grace to that and certain development. In, re- in relation to the story, I do have my own story, but I don't push it on people. <laughs> I, okay. I believe that a painting, a work of art is a mirror. And I've, I'm creating mirrors, and I have something in that mirror that I've reflected, but then whoever comes in, he is uh, a participant. Okay. And people who are looking, they've told me, people told me stories of what they see in my paintings, and okay. this is far from my initial ideas or emotions as could be. And I love this. This is something that I really like to do. I like people to be part of it and communicate and have a conversation with the painting. Yeah. So when people tell me, they, do you know that such and such things that you've painted is a symbol in, uh, like a really big symbol, let's say in Christianity or Islam or uh, religions? And, and I would say, wonderful, I, uh, tell me more. Mm-hmm. But this is not what I intended and that's fine. That's exactly what I, I, I want to I want to have a conversation. Right. So I think I have I have some visual idea that I would like to convey and I've I have some materials that I have to use with, to convey this idea, but how it comes out, it's unknown to me to a degree. I have some initial push but then I have and you can't really I know artists who do this and I I respect them but I can't work this is not the way my mind operates my brain doesn't operate that way and I like the painting to have a story not only in the story that you see right away the visual story this is what she painted I want the painting to have a story as how it was painted. Mm-hmm. So the story would be in the layers that I applied and maybe the layers that I took out. Mm-hmm. And I excavated uh, under layers and bring them out. Mm-hmm. Or I can put the painting away for a couple months and come back to it and said, okay, now I know what to do with you. (laughs) So when I go in and see other people's paintings, I am am attracted to paintings that have a a story of how they were made. Not Mm -hmm. only the story that was was conceived by the the painter and executed, Mm -hmm. but also... I want to see the history of the painting itself, of the process, the history of a process, how it was done. And that's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in <clears throat> this idea that you're saying you, you execute the work, you, you make the painting, and then you, you kind of let it go because the viewer in the future might interpret it very differently than what you were originally thinking and feeling and intending. Has it ever 
frustrated you to think, oh, but in this painting, I really wanted to convey this message or this emotion and and um, maybe somebody else misinterpreted it and, and that would be upsetting. I mean, I've felt that way <laughs> the past, sometimes. Um, it depends on, you know, if, if how emotional the piece is or if there's a real political message behind it or something like that. But um, have you ever felt that or you, what are your thoughts? Yes. Um, I can tell you a story. And I've told this story to my students before. Okay. I've painted, I like to look in the fire. Oh, I absolutely yeah. love to look in the fire and see all these things that's going on in the fire. It's the whole life, like the cities come and, and go into ruins and, and people and faces and things are sparkling. It's very mysterious to me. Fire is very attractive to me. Oh, yeah. I'm not an arsonist. I just, <laughs> I just like to look at it. But there was this painting that I've done, and I've sold it since then, but it was fire, but it was a lot of faces in there, and they were kind of going in and out of the fire and oh. layers of faces. If people see my paintings, I have a lot of faces everywhere. I see them. I think it's a medical condition that you see faces in everything. That I, I definitely have that. So, so this... I had an opening, and this old lady came, the two of them, and, and she's like, can I ask you a question? Sure. And she looks at the painting, and it's a small painting. It has fire in it. It's very warm colors, very comforting to me. And she says, is that hell? Oh. And I was just stunned. And I just thought, oh, well, that's not what I intended. I really just love fire. So for her, those people were suffering and burning. Oh, yeah. And for me, those were just things I see in the fire. So it's just so many different things that we come from so many different, we come from different backgrounds with her. Mm -hmm. Her background conditioned her or you know, prepared her to see this because of how she grew up, what her beliefs are, mm. which might not be my beliefs. Mm. But it wasn't upsetting to me. It was just like fascinating. Yeah. The other thing is when I have a painting that was painted in certain, in response to certain story or certain belief or certain event, and then it is interpreted by, let's see, an art review or uh, somewhere written, printed out or online. Mm -hmm. And it's interpreted um, to a degree without my point, but attributed to my painting. Oh, right? <laughs> so I usually just don't respond. I I have my I have my idea what I wanted to say there. So there was the instance that I was a little it was it was kind of oh because the quality was attributed that I I didn't intend to have there. But I respect the reviewers the reviewers right to do this mm. because I let the painting out in the world, and I can't control what people think about it. <laughs> so I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And I think everybody are free to come and take what they want from it. 
that's why we paint. <laughs> if I don't want anybody to see it, I probably never show it. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah, and I, I, I was taught one of the things I was taught, and I, I, I believe this, but then I think there are moments when, well, not necessarily. Um, I, I was taught that it, good artwork, the best artwork, is artwork that is classic, uh -huh. meaning that no matter what your culture is, no matter what time period you live in, it still will resonate. It will still have that mirror reflection with the viewer. And so it's, it's something I often strive for in my work to have it communicate to the viewer and, and, and hopefully they will see themselves reflected in it no matter who they are, when they are, and, and, and that we will, in that resonation, in that, that mirror reflection, we'll understand ourselves better. Because I, you know, we're we're each individuals. We we we're so unique, and yet we're more alike than our differences. And I and I like when when I can make that connection with people. But then other times you have to let it go, and you have to say that you know this symbol represents something very different to you than it does to me, and that's okay. But it starts the dialogue. So have you ever is is the a universal Art is a universal language where it's it could communicate without boundaries. Um, is that something you've thought about? Well, with the respect of the classical art, you are calling yourself an, uh, a contemporary impressionist, uh -huh. correct? Yeah. All right. So I can For lack say of a better word. <laughs> well, but it's it describes it. It describes it fairly fairly clear right uh -huh. what you what you're trying to convey impressionists in their lifetime mm -hmm. were not initially considered classical right. they were rebellious and they were um considered um people who don't have skills who don't know how to paint uh you know in in the canons of French Academy right. and all the classical because they opened color they freed the color they exploded the color yeah. and you know the classical norm at the time was very um somber and uh the color belonged to the object you can't free the color from the object it's it's part of the object and it's it's the quality of the object and the atmosphere everything was kind of you know subdued and toned down to a degree mm -hmm. In the, in that period of time, so they they were revolutionaries. Now we consider impressionists classical because time has passed, right? And now everybody so uh, used to their way of seeing the world uh -huh. that people can't can't even understand how you not like this. It's like the best colorful, wonderful way to represent nature, especially, you know, plein air landscapes and still lives, everything we see through Impressionists' eyes. So they've trained generations to see like them. Okay. Uh -huh. So does that, does that have some thought of how classical changes through 
the ages. So the classical is a fluid. Yeah. The classical considerably came from Greeks and Romans and how those artists wanted to go back to Greeks. Right. right. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's a little bit more open. Mm. And, uh, you know, we had ex expressionism. We have very, very tumultuous time in, in American art and uh, avant-garde and all that. And then now, you know, the pendulum starts to swing back and we have more and more uh, figurative work. We have people studying anatomy more in depth and everybody's coming back to realize that, uh, you know, the classical ways in real classical ways, like the Greeks and Romans, you know, we go back to that a little more. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's fluid to me. It's not. Okay. It's not set. Mm -hmm. Does that? Did I answer that to a degree? Uh -huh. Yeah, I, th I think so. Okay. Yeah, I. You know, maybe classic isn't the word that I should use to describe that because you, we take the word classic, and that I know can be applied to the Greek and Roman um, sculpture. Uh -huh. and, you know, there's that yeah. definition of it, and when when I use the word classic, I mean that. It, it's not specific to that time period, but it, mm -hmm. it could be understood by anybody at any time period. So <clears throat> let's think of an example. So behind us, we have a painting that I did. It's very ex expressionist. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a woman with, and she's draped over, you know, almost embracing an orb of light. And then there's these flowers that are raining down from her. And this image, I would hope that if I was able to time travel and I had a time travel machine and I, I went back a thousand years and then I showed somebody this painting, they would still they'd see a woman and they would see the warmth there and they, they would get some sort of a sense of what I'm trying to say, even if they hadn't viewed the German Expressionist movement work. You know? yeah, yeah, so sure. um, those are my thoughts on that. I guess so. I guess yeah. so. Well, I, we can't unfortunately travel and, and try it out. <laughs> I, I wish we would have this experiment, then we would have it all clear. But we can't. So we can only assume. Yeah. All right. Well, it's good that we can communicate with people who are our contemporaries. Yeah. And that gives us, uh, you know, more immediate response, which is great. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, and I think that, like you were talking about, how art is, is there's an internal, yeah. there's a, the inside of ourselves that we're expressing, and for me, it's a push pull. I guess is what I'm, 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 I'm. What your work is is making me, me think and feel because there's the inner self that we want to express, and then other times we want to communicate something, and then. Yeah, so I, I guess I just it's like like I'm being pulled in two directions. Like I, like I want to just let out that inner world and let it go and let it you know fly free. I can if it's misinterpreted, oh well, it doesn't matter. And then there's another part of me that's like, but I, there's something I'm trying to say that I really want for other people to be comforted by, or I want them to to understand themselves better, or or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, my thoughts on that. When you have worked as an art teacher, what did you say most often to your students? 
it depends, you know, it depends on the situation and on a student and different students needs different, different conversations. Um, I was trying to be as individual with each student as I could possibly be depending on the size of the group. Mm. And I believe that the art, teaching art is a very individual uh, process. So, of course, there are basic things they need to do and learn. But I think with adult students, mostly with adult students, it's the fear of making a mistake. Mm. And I was trying to kind of shift their mind that there's no such thing as a an ultimate mistake in making art it's a process and by doing something by starting something you are starting that process and you are in it you are in the flow of that of that art making and you can turn it you can create different ways and different pathways in your, in your process as you do this so you can't just um, make mistakes you 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 say a and then you say b and then you keep going it's a road mm-hmm. so there's no there's no it shouldn't be fear of mistakes and i was trying to expose them to different different ways of expressing their idea if they have an idea if they have an emotion uh, how to express it 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 depends. It, it <laughs> um, so I was trying to 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 help them find their way of solving this, of expressing their their desire. They they came because they wanted to do something. They they came to art class because they wanted to learn something or express something that was inside them. So we have to get it out and 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 try to see how they can do it. And it's very it's very individual. It. I don't know. I had an interesting experience. I was working with uh, a group, and it was a parent and a child. Well, it was a an older child, but they were making masks of their own face, and they were then doing a collage of some sorts of dimensional work on those masks to create an image of who they are inside. And the daughter didn't have any problems doing that. She made a mask and then she was doing all these interesting things on her face that she loves and um, it was fascinating. And mother didn't want to do, she asked me for a mold, a pre-made mold, so she could just do something very safe. Mm. And I led her and when she was looking at her daughter's mask and how, you know, extraordinary things are coming out of of her of her of her face after a while she came to me and she said i've reconsidered can i have my own face now <laughs> so, <laughs> so so after that we on her on her work we had her her mold face that was fabric you know like factory made and very generic and 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 then she came up to actually making what she what she was thinking she is, okay. so it was very it was very rewarding. So this is my goal, to okay. to get people out of the mold. Okay, wow. 
Nice. Very nice. What advice would you give to your younger artist self? You know, I was thinking about this question and I have to be brutally honest in this. Okay. I cannot give advice to my younger self right now. I cannot. Because I am thinking of my younger self and I could probably learn, go back and learn from my younger self more of being inquisitive and trying things. And I think I I am not ready. I, I don't think I've learned enough to be advising my younger self. I'm still learning. I can't. My younger self was asking enormous questions, big questions of meaning, and I'm still trying to figure that out, and I can tell my younger self I'm still working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. So what's the main message you're trying to convey with your artwork? We're all connected. Uh, I work a lot with fabric, and the idea of a fabric is the like woven threads in and out and holding together. So, like we like it or not, or we agree with that or not, we are making that fabric, that human fabric. And it is apparent that we are so tied together that our actions are affecting each other profoundly every moment. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to make connections and communicate um, as much as I can. Try to understand so-called the other and see how they are like me and how they are not like me Mm. so we can make a stronger fabric. Um, I think a lot about memory and what is memory and how it really affects and defines who we are and it's a function of a brain which is scary because it's something that I can I can feel um, betraying sometime mm-hmm. and um, memory and It's, it's a hard subject for me. It's related to so many things that I I feel very strongly about. So I'm working on some memory and losing memory-related art right now. Mm. Being in the world, expressing things with your senses, just multi-sensory connection with the world, just because I worked with people who have limited abilities in certain in certain senses, it really amazing and opened my eyes to so many things. Textures and smells. Smells really I wish I would do smells. <laughs> Even though I was working in oils in college and I immediately, immediately just transported into my college years when I smelled the uh, turpentine and, and the oil <laughs> it's yeah. just it's just like transporting immediately um, 
nature, I really love nature. If I could be alone in walking by the trees and the water, and um, I would be happy. Um, as I, I grow my paintings, so nature is the ultimate painter, the ultimate artist. Yeah. So I, I just, in awe, I'm, I really love to see what, what she does. What is your favorite art book or story? I, I don't have a, well, I don't know. I was trying to think of the artists who really, really affected me. And I was thinking a list in my head, but it's just so many. Well, of course, everybody would look at my work. They would say, oh, you like Chagall, Chagall, and yes, I agree, and I, I love his work. I really like his earlier work. There was more edgy and kind of, um, you know, he was trying to find his way in the world, and there was so much turmoil in the world at the time, and he was reflecting all this and trying things out, and his flying people, of course, I, I can't escape that. <laughs> and I actually had a friend who lived in the town when he was born Vitebsk and I visited and I I could see where his imagery comes from and I have some of that similar architecture that I grew up with so I can relate to that okay. and his story um, and on the other hand uh, Geronimus Bosch is absolutely a, a fascinating painter that I you know I I didn't see his work. I was seeing, we were collecting stamps, you know, one of our pastimes as artsy kids. We were collecting stamps. There was a lot of stamps with paintings on them. So I had a whole collection of stamps. So I would look at like tiny, tiny paintings of Bosch and his creatures and uh, scary, fascinating, amazing, uh, creepy, uh, mm. all of the above. Beautiful, creepy, beautiful, <laughs> and um, a lot of a lot of my uh, very very deep emotions are coming with Rembrandt. I have a favorite painting when I when we when we came to Indiana from New York. Uh, I went to the museum to the IMA, mm -hmm. and I didn't know what to expect, and I didn't expect much. And I walked down, and I by just by chance, I walked into that library, mm -hmm. the the really great place, quiet. There was no one there, and I saw that Rembrandt. Even though somebody said that it's not real Rembrandt, and I would just want to kill them. No, it is real Rembrandt. Like <laughs> somebody questions the authenticity of this portrait, and like, no, it's real. So the one with the beret, and it has a a shadow over his eye. Mm. And he's looking, he's very, very young. And it it just have, I mean, you could like see the blood under the, his skin, like the, the, the pulse. I don't know how he does this. It's just the mystery. And, mm. and um, like the eye in the shadow of the brain. Mm. So this is something that I come and see when I really feel um, bad. <laughs> so this is my place. This is the place. I think I've, I've, I regard art and art making 
as a spiritual experience, experience that gives me meaning in and the meaning I can create myself, which is like I can be part of it. I, I can participate. But mm. I admire so many, so many things that people have done. And some of the Russian painters that are really like uh, Mikhail Vrubil, he, he was um, a very tragic figure and comparable to uh, Van Gogh in, in the way that he perceived painting and, and tra- tragedy of life. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, just amazing, um, amazing work. And, you know, I would, I would suggest to look him up. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much, Sophia, for sharing your thoughts. I'm so glad you took the time to come talk to me today. (laughs) Thank you. And now for our story, The Stone Flower. So The Stone Flower is an adaptation of a Russian tale by Pavel uh, Bazov that's set in the Ural Mountains. It was also made into a ballet. Once upon a time, there was an orphan named Danny. He was taken in by a kind man who worked as a stone carver. As he grew up, Danny learned from his new father how to create jewelry made of stone. And when he grew to be a young man, Danny met someone who made his heart sing. It was a woman named Katya. Danny asked Katya to marry him. The date was set for their wedding. Danny decided to make Katya a special gift for the occasion. Finding a large chunk of green malachite, he carved a vase with a flower design winding up the side. And when he was finished, he was displeased, however, because he thought the flowers lacked the natural gracefulness of real flowers, and he longed to make the vase as beautiful as his Katya. His father laughed when he heard of Danny's struggle designing the vase. You should find the mythical stone flower for inspiration, his father said. It grows up on Copper Mountain. But the old folks say it will ensnare you, so be careful. Well, the moment Danny heard his father's words, he put on his shoes and coat to make the long journey up the mountain to find the stone flower. After many days of travel, Danny found a glen where gems glittered on the ground. A shaft of light pierced through the branches of the trees, shining upon the stone flower. As his eyes gazed upon it, the stone flower enchanted Danny, clouding his judgment. He thought he had never before seen anything so beautiful. Falling to his knees, he worshipped the flower, forgetting both his father and Katya. Time passed. As Danny sat worshipping the flower, his father became ill and died. Katya worried and wondered if Danny was lost or hurt. Everyone urged Katya to forget Danny, but she could not. After three years, Katya decided to go after him. 
She wandered far and wide, asking everyone if they had seen Danny. After she had visited every village, Katya decided that he must have gone where no one dared to live, up into the lonely hills of Copper Mountain. Finally, Katya found the glen, with glittering gems and Danny enchanted by the stone flower. When she touched Danny's arm, the spell was broken. He looked up, blinked, and could see again. He remembered his love for Katya. Looking down at the flower, he realized that for all its beauty, the stone flower could never love him back. Danny and Katya left the glen, traveling back down the mountain. They went home. My thoughts on this story, I think sometimes we are to get wrapped up in the hunt for perfection with our craftsmanship. Just as Danny got wrapped up in the perfection of creating a vase as a gift for Katya. And it's important to remember that if we're creating artwork as a gift for the receiver, that's more important than an elusive perfection. Or if we're creating it for ourselves, well, we're not perfect anyway, so what's the point of that? <laughs> but, you know, in a painting, for example, we cannot depict every leaf on the tree. You can't. When throwing a pot, we can't create a perfect sphere. But it's in the imperfections that art becomes graceful, like nature. So this story and many others are available in my book, The Alchemy of Art, Stories for the Classroom. If you love this podcast and want to see it continue, support us by going to my website, azirfineart.com, to make a donation on the podcast page. Thanks, everyone. May these stories of art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice. You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Addie Hirshton and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T dot com.